is Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, where we help leaders be future ready. Helping us in this mission today is Paul Gibbons, a thought leader and futurist on behavioral science, culture, leadership, and the future of work. We'll be talking about change myths and the war on truth, specifically talking about Paul's recent book with the same title. Paul, we're glad you're with us. I am super glad to be here again. Nice to see you. Since our last podcast, I think you joined and left IBM. So you were an entrepreneur. You went back to the corporate world briefly after running a business for 20 years. So what's it like to be back? It's interesting after 30 years going back in the corporate world. You know, what do you expect after I left the corporate world in 2000? So is that 30 years? That's 20 some years. I wish I could say that things were better. You know, I'm of the view that corporations since the mid-1990s have gotten better at some things. I think we care more about sustainability. I think we care more about diversity, inclusion, all the things that some people like to hate. The notion that business should just make money for a very few people at the top has weakened, I'd say. And so that's great. And going back into a consulting firm, I left PwC in 2000. It's kind of the same. There's still the culture of overwork which I thought might have slightly disappeared. But one of the things that I thought was considerably worse, and your listeners will perhaps worry about this along with me, is that I found the more hostile and toxic incidents that I expected. And what do I mean by that? I mean, sort of a culture of fear. I'll give a very specific example. An IBM consultant has to be utilized. That means they have to be out of clients earning money for the firm, standard stuff. And what happens if your utilization falls below a certain percentage point in the old days you were given encouragement and you were given support and you were pushed around to try and make yourself more commercially valuable to the firm. At IBM, there's a sort of semi-automated process run by finance, which is called a PIP, which I, I think is a word of performance improvement plan, which basically you get 30 days to get your shit together, otherwise you're fired. Now that, first of all, is harsh because the consulting business, as you know, Maureen, as a long-term consultant, has ebbs and flows of utilization. But the other thing that I think is particularly brutal about it is your young 25 or 30 or 35-year-old consultant doesn't have much say in the short term over whether they're utilized or not. That is to do with economic conditions and how well the partners are selling. It has to do with the ebbs and flows of the consulting business. And I think it's just cruel and harsh and inhuman. And I spoke to two people there that had mental health issues that were put on a PIP. It's extremely stressful. You might be fired in 30 days. You might not be able to pay the mortgage in 30 days. And I found that horrifying. I also found that, to my surprise, people were willing to speak ill of colleagues that weren't there. And I found that really something that, again, I've spent my career trying to persuade people that you shouldn't say anything about someone that you, should, that you wouldn't say to them. <laughs> and I found that that was distressing. And the third thing is, I found that in consulting, the emphasis is, of course, on the commercials, on selling work, on building relationships with clients, with adding value to clients, with doing, in an IBM's case, enormous projects. Not million-dollar projects, not $10 million projects, $100 million projects, $500 million projects sometimes for clients. But we neglect the way that they're run internally. And I, I found that IBM, for example, I've been a leadership coach, as you got more in for your sins back in the day. And I found there was a, really like nobody at IBM had a coach. And I found that extraordinary because in working in the U, maybe it's an IBM thing or maybe it's a UK, US thing. But in the US, everybody I knew who was anybody in an organization who had any kind of $100 million P&L had a coach. Just like Tiger Woods has a coach, the Serbian tennis player, Djokovic has a coach. You know, to be a high performer in any industry, you need someone to call you on your bullshit, to help you see things that you don't see. Also being a leader at the top of an organization, be incredibly lonely because of the political infrastructure. You can't really be super duper duper vulnerable and disclose your internal worries and fears and anxieties and weaknesses and growth areas. And to have a coach, I think you're going to be a high performer. It's really essential. There was none of that at IBM. And I don't think they spent a lot of time developing a leadership cadre the way a lot of organizations I've worked in, HSBC and Procter and & Gamble and Cadbury Schweppes and Microsoft and Google, all the places I've been, spend a lot of effort developing leaders because you know they see them as the future of the organization. Those are the things that I found different. And I have to say, honestly, somewhat distressing. So you are now back to being an entrepreneur and writing books, which we win. Yay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, because your books sell incredibly well. And, you know, there are lots of books that I am jaded that if you're an Amazon bestseller because you sold your book for one cent or gave it away, that does not make you a bestseller. That makes you a person who has worked well with a PR firm. Yeah. Your books actually sell really well, right? They do. 
but yes, yes, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I'm back writing books. I'm back doing the sort of keynote speech thing, which disappeared in 2020. In 2019, before COVID, I was doing talks on five continents, and I was traveling around the United States and, and doing the keynote thing, and that was a really fun and exciting and uh, lucrative thing to do. And then all of a sudden, that all disappeared. It's sort of slowly coming back. So I'm doing that. I'm doing some professoring, so I'll be joining a university. I won't, I won't say who it is now, but as a kind of part-time professor. And I'm also working with a bunch of consulting firms as an advisor to help them build parts of their practice. So like bits and pieces, you know, you're trying to earn a crust. Yeah. And you're probably not eating dog food at night. So <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. I saved that for my old age. <laughs> so let's jump into your new book. Yeah. So Change Myths. So for listeners who don't know, I wrote something called The Science of Organizational Change in 2013, and I really struck it lucky. It was the first major book that I wrote, and I dared to be a little bit different and say that there were things in the world of organizational change that weren't true, that were still taught as dogma by Harvard Business School and Duke and NCAT and all of that. And I did say, you know, we need to bring more science into change management. It will always be a little bit craft-like. There always will be in leadership development and change management and the artisanal practitioner who has deep experience and intuitions about the right way to proceed. But I also think we need to back stuff up with science as science makes itself available in the world of human beings, right? So anyway, that was what the book said briefly. And then in the book, there were some things that I thought were myths in the change world. I think I listed 18 or 20 of them. And I didn't give it a whole lot of maybe pages, maybe half a chapter. But I really got inspired by the idea of writing a book that takes the five or six or eight things that in the change world that aren't true, aren't useful and potentially harmful and bringing them to the attention of people. Now, I would like to be the Supreme Court of change management methodologies. I would like to be the final arbiter of truth and falsehood. That ain't going to happen in my lifetime. So what the book tries to do is give people some tools to think for themselves, perhaps think differently about the things that they use day in and day out so that they can make the call for themselves. And so that's the thrust of the book. I realize you want people to read the book. Love that. And let's talk about him. We're not going to cover the whole book in, you know, an hour. Yeah. So you're probably not at risk. But let's talk about some of the top myths and tell us a myth. Tell us why it's a myth. And give us an example. And given my change background, I would love to bounce in and out of that conversation. All right. Well, what's the first thing you learned back? I won't name a date, but what's the first thing you learned back in the day? The first change thing that you learned for me, it was denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Change curve. Change curve. I learned on the first slide of my first change management course in 1994 that that was what human beings would experience going through organizational change. I was a noob right? I was like 33 years old and I knew nothing about change management, but I was pretty sure I wanted to point my career in that direction. So I was taught that. And I began to wonder about it, you know, like, is the reorg of the IT department on the third floor need to be like on death and dying? And so, you know, it's like, when you say it like that, it's like, well, I ought it to be. And then we can also check our own intuitions and say, well, is every change I've gone through in my life been miserable? And have I gone through something that looks like that? And the answer is no. I got married, I graduated from college, I started my first job. You know, there are things that go well. There are things that are opportunities. And sometimes novelty can be a great thing. And also, I think it does kind of a disservice to human beings that, you know, every time we go through change, these human beings are these resistant, sludgy people that need to be coerced or beaten into change. So anyway, the research from that comes to the 1960s. And a woman who was named among the top 20 psychologists of the 20th century, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, talk to the dying people. But the title of her book was What the Dying Have to Teach Nurses, Clergy, and the Rest of Us. What she really was trying to do was give a voice to the people who are at the end of their life. And a lot of what we have today in our world, hospice care and end of life and all of that kind of stuff, all of that was partially ushered in by her great work in giving a voice to the dying. But she also came up with this curve. So the answer is, what do grief specialists say about that today? And they say there's no script for how people grieve. It's as particular as individual as human beings are. Okay, that makes sense. And then there's, well, does that research extrapolate to organization? Like, where's the proof that third floor IT department who's putting in a CRM system will go through something like that? And the short answer is, there ain't none. Then other people will say, yeah, yeah, okay, it's not true in like any academic empirical sense. I get you, Paul. 
yeah, all right, you know, research since the 1960s has changed and people don't grieve the way that we thought they used to grieve and it's more individualized and it's not scripted, but it helps me empathize. And I said, well, does it? Does having a script for the way that someone goes through change help you be with that person and understand their lived experience? When I teach it, we talk about positive change and negative change. So if I get married, have a child, get a dog, assuming any of these are things I chose to do and assumed they would be constructive in my life, then I have a positive experience. I've often overestimated how positive, hence the divorce rate. <laughs> get married, realize it hasn't solved all my problems. So my life is still my life yeah. and the goods and bads are still there. And it's hopefully improved by having a person in my life. But I can say after my marriage, having a person in my life, I was overly optimistic and it didn't solve all my problems. So there was still a change acceptance curve. It wasn't the death and dying curve. There was some curve. There's some curve. Yeah. And it does help at least me now manage myself to be able to say, okay, this is just kind of the standard thing, right? It's not going to solve all my problems. I can put things into perspective. Let's talk about some other curves though, because all of the change curves have is a dip, right? They have this bit where you're like, this isn't happening to me. And then they have this bit where the psychological shit hits the fan, right? But there are other ways that people grow and learn and change. For example, who among us hasn't bought something like a Peloton and had this huge enthusiasm for three weeks and then sold it on eBay six months later after drying our laundry on it. A lot of what happens in change, or some of what happens in learning and change, is a vast amount of enthusiasm to begin with, an upswing, and then you hit a hard spot. Another thing that happens in change is a plateau. You make a lot of progress and you pick off all the long-hanging fruit, say it's learning a new skill, for example, and then you hit, oh, this is a little tougher, and you hit a plateau. And then if you persevere, you go past the plateau and you go further up. So there are all sorts of different shapes that human beings go through, S-curves and enthusiasm and hype cycles and all of those kinds of things. So the shape of learning and change, and I do think they're very tightly linked, can look different ways. So why this? And the other why this question is, why those five? You know, the experience of loss or negative change is confusion, disorientation. Anger, bargaining. Well, there are those, but there are... 20 or 25. Why those five? Why those five? We have to ask ourselves that question. But the question is, does it help you empathize? So you've said it helps you empathize with yourself, so to speak, right? It helps you say, hey, look, this is kind of shitty right now, but life goes on and I've been living long enough to know that so is darkest before the dawn, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just not sure having that in mind as a change practitioner, when we go to the third floor IT department who's putting in a new CRM system, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've introduced the question to practitioners. We each have to make our own call as to whether this thing may be valuable to us or not, may be valuable to our clients or not. I think no. I, you know, I've kind of never used it. So when I became a workaday change management person, like after I did my training and after like two or three years of a sort of quote-unquote apprenticeship, I never found much of a use for it. I understood that some people were finding it shitty. I get it. <laughs> I do get it. This is horrible, right? I do get that. But I didn't find that particular thing to be of particular use to me. Anyway, that's just one of the eight. But to tease that out and put a bow on it, so to speak. Yeah. So it does sound like it's helpful to know that when I go to the IT department and say, I'm unplugging the old system, plugging a new system in, and you may have to work a thousand hours in the next three weeks to make this happen, I should acknowledge that I am disrupting their lives they could experience some kind of annoyance with me, with their life, a level of frustration sure. that I should make an attempt to understand and mitigate. My golly, that's our job, right? Is to get where they're at and where they're going through. You can't really support an organization or an individual and change unless you get them. Throw out the curve, but pay attention to the humans. If the curve says nothing more than sometimes change is shitty, it's not very useful, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? I want to circle back to the bigger point is how we parse things like that, like whether we choose for ourselves as individuals with power, freedom and conscious and make choices for ourselves to use something like that or not, to adopt it or not. And in the book, I want to give people a tool to do that. And the tool I give them is something from philosophy. I have a kind of a philosophy nerd. And it's called LIAR. And basically LIAR says, it's an acronym, that if you know something, it either comes from an authority figure, reasonable enough, it either comes from your gut, 
I don't want to discard the fact that some things we sort of know intuitively, that's flawed, but useful, especially if you're very experienced, a doctor or a car mechanic, you'll have intuition when you listen to the car or when you look at a patient that hmm, this isn't quite right. And that happens to us in change also. So there's intuition and there's authority. And then there's logic. Does this add up? Can I, for example, in the case of neuroscience, take this data on how brain responds biochemically? Does it add up to this is what happens in social systems? That's a kind of a logical thing. And then there's research. The R is research. So logic, intuition, authority, and research. And the thing that I'm really passionate about is how people make decisions for themselves as citizens, as parents, as change experts, as business leaders, as consumers of food and nutrition and wellness products, whatever it might be, how you make decisions. And the big picture of the book is that we've had this democratization of information. It used to be for the news. It used to be Walter Cronkite. And that's the way it is. December 7, 1974. And you used to, when Walter Cronkite says that's the way it is, that's the way it was. There wasn't like, oh, no, it's talking shit, it's fake news, or, you know, none of that, right? And that also happened with things like, trust me, I'm a doctor. Trust me, I'm a doctor. I know what's up. We don't have that so much today. Now, that is a good thing because information is power. And the authoritative information just doesn't come from old white guys anymore. Like anybody with a keyboard and passion and some moderate skills can opine about things, whether that be the news or whether that be wellness products, whether that be change management. And if you're good at selling your ideas, you attain a certain amount of popularity, and then the popularity confers a certain amount of expertise to you, and expertise confers more popularity, and you have a virtuous circle, which is what all of the great change gurus of today and the Tony Robbinses of today, you become an expert on it. Marketing is a part of the game. So that's the world we live in where we have news sources like Alex Jones, for example, who say that and I don't want to be super political, but you know, all those kids were actors that died in Newtown, for, for example. Or you have miracle bleach cures for COVID-19. Or you have Bill Gates is putting microchips in your body through the vaccine. You have stuff like that. And I don't mean to just like mischaracterize the right. The left have their own as well. And so we have all this stuff in the world. Like, how do we consciously make good decisions about it? And in the case of vaccination, you might say, okay, authority. The CDC says this. But my intuition says, holy shit, you know, they only took 10 months to deliver it. I thought it took 10 years. Maybe this thing's risky. And the logic may say, a friend of yours may argue and say, well, if you don't get vaccinated, you'll develop a healthier immune system faster. Oh, okay. Well, my... and then what does research say? Vaccinations have been around since like 1780, maybe even cowpox and smallpox with the Jenner in the late 1700s. They've been around a long time and there have been extensively studied. So what does research say about vaccination? And so you have these conflicting sources of authority. And that happens in change, too. So this book happens to be about change. But it also is the bigger question. Like if you're Gwyneth Paltrow and she's selling a product that conveys certain benefits to you. My in-laws used to wear magnets all over their body. I don't I mean, you know, you can't make this stuff up. But they, they did because the magnets, I can't remember what they did. They did something. I can't remember. I can't remember what they thought they did. We need to be able to decide for ourselves as consumers where it applies to ourselves as consumers or citizens or voters or parents or taking care of our own bodies and our own health. We need to be able to make good decisions in this world where information frequently conflicts. So I should take off my magnetic vest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. These are real decisions. You know, should I buy this wellness product? You know, should I vaccinate myself? Should I vaccinate my children? These are big decisions. Should I vote for someone who says X is true. One of the political candidates says, you know, crime has never been worse in the United States. That, that was false. It's never been lower. It's ticked up a little bit since then. But at the time that this gentleman was speaking about the crime rate, but he was using that to do it. And IBM, I remember one of the senior leaders say we're in the middle of a recession in April. I think it was April 2022. The truth of the matter is no economist would have said we we're in a recession there, but that was something that they said. We need ways of validating these authority figures. Said so Anyway, I, I go on and on. So I, I do want to speak more about a change miss, but what are your guys' reflections on that as consumers, as citizens, as voters, as consumers of wellness products and all that kind of stuff? What are your thoughts? As a person who is aging, I realize we're all aging, but at 20, that's a different process than when you're a couple decades later. Yeah, just a couple in my case, right? <laughs> Wellness products have become my friend. And so if you look at my health routine, I heard something on NPR yesterday. So well-researched, published in medical journals, that if you 
use a diffuser with scents, lavender or something. Robotherapy type stuff. Yeah, that it increases your memory by 200% or something. Holy shivoli, where can I get some? Well, that was my thought. 15 bucks, Amazon, I'm having it delivered tomorrow. The worst outcome is my house will smell like lavender. Yeah, that's not so bad, right? Right, so house will smell better. And if I get any smarter, 3% smarter, it's a win. So I will say that the combination of research, I do actually listen to my healthcare providers. Yeah. I go to a center for integrative health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I exercise regularly. I do yoga. Anything that seems reasonable, if it protects my brain because I have two parents with Alzheimer's. Oh, dear. I'm going to do it. And watching that decline may put me in the bucket of people who are susceptible to questionable claims, but research is the foundation for my decisions. And logic. Yeah. If something seems too good to be true, I clearly do not wear a magnetic vest. And that's your intuition. You see, your intuition. Now, let's take an example from the change management world. Back in the dark days of the 1990s, it was considered to be truth that 70% of change projects failed. Failed to deliver the results they were sold. Precisely. That was the claim. Now, you may say to yourself, that is a very good example of the A, because that was said by a guy called John Cotter who is the biggest A probably in the change world, even to this day. I think three of his books are in the, probably in the top 10 on change. So that comes from the A. And if you're a practitioner like me, you want to also trust your intuition. So my intuition says, really, dude, really 70%? Come on. You really think that 70% of change initiatives and in organization failure to deliver the promised benefits? Okay, well, that sounds like a hypothesis. Let's do some testing. Until people tried to test this, and I put this in the science of organizational change, and it's just complete puerile baloney. In some things, like culture change, that's about right. But in a lot of things, new product launches, new CRM systems, new working practices, new workforce or working day or whatever you're using and something like that, there's nothing like that. It's more like 80% success, 90% success. The conscious practitioner back when Cotter said that in 1992 or whatever he and Nittenoria said it, would have said, hang on a minute, buddy. You really tell me that 70%? That's my intuition challenging the authority figure. And then what do we do? We go to logic or we go to research. We go, okay, what does the research say? The research says nonsense, right? But that's still at Harvard's marketing materials, by the way. <laughs> I still get stuff from Harvard in my inbox saying, you know that 70% of change projects fail and you can be one of the dunderheads that has them fail or you can take our course and become one of the elite few. They actually use that word. The elite few leaders that can get this shit done. That's still in their marketing material, even though that was fulsomely debunked over the last three decades. It's been debunked so many times I'm blue in the face. So that's an example of your intuition, like you in the magnetic vest and saying, yeah, you want to it really, buddy? <laughs> Challenging what comes to you as wisdom or information. Your intuition says, hang on a minute, let me double check this. And that's a skill we have to have to have. We have to have that skill today. How many times a day do you receive some sort of information or something like that? And you say, hang on, I better check this out. I better go to the University of Google or I better go to Wikipedia or I better go to a scientific research paper, the Journal of Organizational Change Management or the Journal of Leadership Studies or whatever and say, let me double check this nonsense. It doesn't sound right to me. And then also we need to double check the stuff that we think is true because our confirmation bias says when someone says something is true that jibes with our intuition, there's that sort of click. Like if we receive information and it jibes with our pre-existing beliefs, we go, yeah, I got that. I'm right. And there's a very interesting thing called the Forer effect, F-O-R-E-R -E effect. And he was a dude, I think he's a researcher in the 40s and 50s, and he did something very interesting. He had a classroom, say, full of 20 people, right? And he was a professor and he's teaching some course. And he gives them a questionnaire, a personality questionnaire. And he has the 20 students fill out this personality questionnaire. And then he comes back and he collates the responses and he gives them the feedback. Except you know what he did? Tricky guy. He randomized it. He randomized the feedback. So he got their input and he gave it back to them, but he shuffled the deck. So what happens? Now, you would think that the students would go, hey, hey hang on a minute. This isn't me. I must have the wrong paper. This is that guy over there. They gave it like 4.54 out of 5 for accuracy. And that's because, and this applies to, by the way, Myers-Briggs. It applies to learning styles. It applies to every psychometrics that's on the market is what 
we like to be told nice things about ourselves. It applies to astrology. It's horoscopes. It's everyone can find something. Absolutely. Have you ever got a horoscope? Say, yeah. <laughs> but I do my Myers-Briggs or my Strengths Finder and stuff like that. You're intuitive and, you know, you have great judgment and you're entrepreneurial in spirit and you like to take calculated risks to achieve results. By God. Yeah, that's me. Of course it is. <laughs> if it only were true, right? It ain't certainly not true all the time. So we get this kind of feedback on ourselves and our instant reaction is often fit jibes with our self-concept is to approve it. And that happens in Myers-Briggs a lot. Because what we're doing in Myers-Briggs is we're giving the people this questionnaire and then what we do is we play back to them their self-concept. So for example, and again, I don't want to make this political, but say you gave a certain former presidential candidate who may again be a presidential candidate, a questionnaire that asked them about their values and their attitudes towards the world, their attitudes towards women, towards immigration, towards leadership, towards foreign leaders, you know, whatever. And you gave them this questionnaire and then you played back the results of the questionnaire. What you're doing is you're playing back their self-concept. Now, have you ever seen The Office? Yes, but not often. Not often, right. But you see The Office, you know, there's but basically there's one in the UK, there's one in the US. And, and this guy thinks he's the greatest leader in the world. He thinks he cares about his people. He's effective. He's a great relationship builder. The guy's a dunderhead. The guy's a narcissistic thing. This happens. And so how useful is it to a leader to play back to them their self-concept? I'm going to speak to you as a leadership coach. Part of the time, what we need to do is challenge their self-concept. And that's where the 360, and I know there are lots of issues with 360s, Sure, but at least it gives people feedback from an external source. And it's one of the challenges of coaching that if the only person who tells me information about themselves, I did a great job in that presentation. I talked to someone else and they're like, uh-huh, stepped on body parts. Yeah, yeah. Bad, bad, bad. But absent external information. And often people are too nice, too polite, or just don't want to make the effort. Sure. Because they don't want to hurt the person or they'll get yelled at, whatever. Yeah, actually, I have a theory about that. Is it's not that they don't want to hurt the person. They don't want to experience the emotional discomfort themselves. They don't want to hurt themselves, quote unquote. I think that's that. I couldn't possibly tell them this is like, nobody. you don't want to be with the discomfort of it. I'm not saying it's always appropriate to tell everybody everything. But it's your discomfort you're worried about, not theirs. <laughs> but yeah, so we want to help leaders illuminate these parts of their personality that they may not see. If you talk to a couple who are going through a divorce, to go back to an example we spoke about earlier, you speak to the guy, you speak to the woman, right, or something like that, or maybe it's a male and a male and a female and a female, Well, whatever. You speak to one of them and they'll give you one story and the other one will give you another rendition of the facts. And if you want to help the person progress their interpretation of the marriage and the breakdown and the counseling, it's completely insufficient to just hear one side of the street because boy or boy is that colored by everything. And as you well know, if you're working with a relationships or organization, you really need to talk to both people. And even ideally, you need to talk to them together in the room so that they can develop some shared sense of what's really going on. So yes, so eliminating people's self-concepts, and that's what a, lot, what a lot of psychometrics do. So there is a chapter in the book on MBTI and generally on psychometrics, which is saying, Okay, so MBTI has authority. It's come out. The MBTI website would say it's used in 95% of the organizations. I think that's probably true. It would say produces results for team development, selection, individual growth and learning plans, leadership development. And they make a shit ton of claims, right? And they make these claims. So that's the authority. And then it also comes from people might say, oh, it comes from Carl Jung. He was the goat. Well, he had some interesting things to say in the 30s and 40s. Are they still true today or were they true then? Okay, question. Right. And then it was taken by Isabel Myers Briggs and Catherine Myers Briggs and then her daughter Elizabeth Myers Briggs and commercialized. So this is the Myers Briggs story and it's now used, but that 95% take up an organization confers some validity on it. In other words, the fact that everybody you know has done the Myers Briggs test would seem to suggest that it's useful and good and true. So you have the authority and you have your intuition. But most of my friends have read a horoscope at some point in time, too. <laughs> of course they have. <laughs> I don't think any of my friends get up in the morning and judge their day based on their horoscope. I dated someone who said, like, this isn't a good day for me to go out on a date. When I'd say, hey, hey, let's go to dinner. She'd go, uh, I need to check. She'd go away. And her horoscope was like two lines in the newspaper, like Virgos, blah, 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 blah. pages and pages of stuff about where everything was in her celestial system and whether she ought to be doing X, Y, or Z. I was like, okay, uh, well, call me when that, that one, call me when the horoscope says it's cool. <laughs>
<laughs> she's not my ex-wife. <laughs> she's my ex-girlfriend. But anyway, you know, no, no, it's kind of interesting being in this space with people who take that kind of with a level of seriousness. I mean, pages and pages and pages of multicolored things about finance and romance and relationships and work and wellness and all of that kind of stuff. This horoscope wasn't just the two lines. It was very elaborate. And she used it as a guide for her life. But we're in, the, in, in, the, in this world of whether psychometrics playing back your self-concept is useful. I've spoken to people. I said I was going to debunk Myers-Briggs. And a lot of people said, hey, man, that stuff was life-changing for me. Like that gave me a level of self-insight. I said, well, it told you what you think about yourself. How far is that useful? How far is the guy from the office? How far is telling him what he thinks about himself going to help him as a leader? And the answer is actually no. He needs to be told some different things about himself. Anyway, that's Myers-Briggs and that's the liar model, which I think, you know, you can use for vaccination. The CDC says this and this is this and this website says this and my friend over there says this. And you know, thing with these conflicting sources of information, we need to be able to parse those to make the best decision for ourselves. So that's the project of the book. And I've mentioned a few of the different myths we tackle in the book. I'm curious, just because the personality type from our leadership lens is interesting to me, we use it as a foundation of know yourself. So I know I'm an introvert. I have also validated externally, not just self-referential, that I'm an introvert. And all that tells me, in my view, is that's my preference. It does not tell me what jobs I'm qualified for, who I should hire, my level of developmental maturity, any of that stuff. None of that stuff. So there is a value in knowing who I see myself as, but limited. Is it helpful, though? Because here you are. First of all, you're not always an introvert, right? I would maintain that you can pony up some extrovert behaviors when you have to. You go to a conference, you're not sitting there in the corner hoping someone comes up and talks to you. There's... A difference between then preferences, my preference is slightly introverted. I am also not limited by my preferences. My preference is to eat hot fudge on every meal, and I don't get to do that. So just tells me something that when I'm at a conference, I may need to build in some recharge time. Sure. That's all it tells me. Sure. There's something called state awareness, and there's something called a sort of a static awareness. State awareness is, how am I right now? It's a question of whether having this template for the way you are is actually helpful to the state awareness or not, because that's what you need to be in touch with is, how are you in the moment right now? And what are the buckets I can choose from in how am I right now? Is it awake, asleep, dreaming? Is it happy, sad? Confused, emotional, angry, afraid, alert, feeling like, boy, I really don't want to talk to anybody. Wish the world would go away right now. Or feeling like, Hey, you know, all of this stuff, that's state awareness. I don't also worry about someone saying, I don't do public speaking because I'm an introvert. So they do Myers-Briggs and they have a lot of credit to ability to say, you know, man, I can't do that. Well, yes, you can. <laughs> you know, there's a great story about Gandhi from uh, his biography, obviously one of the most effective leaders of the 20th century, a man who started with virtually nothing, had no financial resources, had no political power and everything like that, managed to change the direction of an entire country. Let's go. The guy was pretty good. He was asking the speech in London when he was trained in as a barrister in London in, oh, what I guess it's the 20s or something like that. And he was asking the speech as he was leaving London. And he had written the speech out and he'd rehearsed it dozens of times. And he was physically incapable of standing up and giving a speech. He was so preternaturally shy and quote unquote introverted. And he said, I felt deeply ashamed. He said, I started to sweat and I had to give the papers that I prepared to a friend of mine to give the speech that I was going to give. That is a man who changed the world. Now, <laughs> I think that's a great story about the capacity of human beings to learn and change and how, how we are right now may not be the way that we necessarily need to be in the future and the opportunities for growth and learning and change and our human adaptability, our legion. And I don't like anything that kind of paints people into a box from which they can't escape. This is where I think the work you and I both use, I use personality as the foundation. The next thing we look at is developmental maturity. So how do I take the fabric I was given, so slightly introverted, I have a preference to introversion. The first time I spoke to a graduate class, if I was small enough, I would have hidden behind this podium. I just wasn't that skinny. I like ducked down. And over time, I developed the capacity to move beyond that preference to have skills. And I can't let my pre-oriented preference keep me from doing the things I want to do. I'm not willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It is helpful to know. And then I get to grow out of it. 
and look at what's my capacity as we mature through these levels of developmental maturity, our capacity expands. Yeah. And maybe our capacity to change too. Maybe. Absolutely. So this is the thing in the book is like, how do we begin to make sense of the things that are accepted as received wisdom in the world of organizational change? So for example, there's resistance to change. There's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. There's this idea from the 1940s that organizations need to be unfrozen. It's called unfreeze, change, refreeze, UCR. Kurt Levine, maybe the preeminent social scientist from the 20th century, Kurt Levine, probably doesn't have an equal. Authority, yes. Written in the 1940s, yes. Has it been tested and validated? Yes. Is it applied to 21st century organizations? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Sense, one of the other myths that we treat in the book is sense of urgency. So this is another John Cotterism. So who do you know, Maureen, that needs more urgency in their life? Clearly not me. Do organizations, do they really need to? And I came from an organization, I, IBM, everything was urgent. Everything was like the most important thing on the freaking planet. And sometimes I think, do human beings need to take a chill pill? And by the way, this is the L in logic in the liar model. If everything is urgent, nothing is urgent. There are people I would like to elevate the urgency on things I care about. I dare say. They have things that they think are urgent, and I may disagree in their prioritization. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, it's just I think this is accepted as dogmatic truth. And that's what you need to do is you need to whip up this sense of fear in organizations. Human beings are these complacent, comatose, change-resistant organizations are complacent and they're comatose and they're change-resistant. And what we need to do as a leader, and this is something that IBM was very much part of IBM's leadership DNA, we need to whip them into some kind of greater frenzy because they're sleeping their way into, is that always true? Is it usefully true? Are the emotional comebacks from creating that word? The whole idea of burning platform was developed also in the 1990s. That was something that in 1989, it was Piper after where people who were trained not to jump off the oil rig. The only way they could save their life was to jump off the oil rig because it was quote-unquote a burning platform. But is using that to change organizations healthy? Because when you activate the parts of the nervous system that deal with stress and emotions, first of all, they have long-term deleterious stress, cortisol and overstimulation of the adrenal glands. So we know all of that's true. But also what we know also from neuroscience is that these things diminish people's ability for creative thought and for collaboration. So you use these swords to change urgency and a burning platform at your peril, in my view. And are they always true? Now, if a, people are in a movie and there's a fire, you want to take, um, put down the popcorn to get out of the movie. <laughs> Excuse my French. But you need to want to get out of the movie theater, right? That requires a sense of urgency. But is everything that happens in a 21st century organization, that sort of movie theater fire kind of urgency? And so that's another question we need to ask ourselves as change leaders. There's some research by McKinsey that I think is really interesting that says, yes, in fact, you do need to know that there is pressure on the organization. But what often helps people change is a vision of the positive future more than we're coming at you with kind of the Mad Max, we're going to run you over. If you don't then get out of the way, we're going to back up and run you over again. That combined with the incidence of depression and something around 40% of our working population suffers from anxiety and depression. So to your point, elevating the fear in the 90s, that was not the same. So if we use the 1990s approach of, what did we used to say, the buses pulling out of the station or the- Trains leaving the station, you better get on that damn thing, right? To your point, we know more about brains. We live in a world where people are suffering from much more anxiety and depression. And things like an abundance mindset, some of the, the work of Jim Ritchie Dunham, that if we come to people with not a delusional abundance, but uh, we can think our way through problems abundance, we don't need to threaten people. There's so much theory now that suggests that, yes, in fact, some people probably need to be helped to accelerate. Sure. But the bulk of the population is suffering. Some people need to slow down too, right? Some people need to slow down. I was using the example before we got on the call today that I felt like I know what a margarita now feels like inside the blender because that's what my world feels like. Uh, 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 Nobody uh, needs uh, uh. to accelerate me. <laughs> you don't need a sense of urgency anymore in your life, right? You need some chill pill. And I meditate every day, and I still feel like I'm the ice cubes in the margarita. I've got to believe a lot of other people have that same sense of there's so much coming at me. My challenge is to make sense of all of it. 
I don't need someone to turn the heat up on me. Yeah, and the 21st century world is, is a world that is frenetic. So whether a sense of urgency was right, you know, back in the day, I don't know, I don't know, I prefer to believe it wasn't. Whether a sense of urgency would have saved Kodak or BlackBerry or Search in Motion or whatever it was called, whether that would be the magic pixie dust that would have saved those organizations, we don't get to know whether that would have been true or not. But anyway, I, I don't think, as you know from your work, um, from the innovative leadership industry, leadership is highly contextual. Leading change is highly contextual. It depends on the individual and the group I'm talking to or the kind of change I'm talking to. And a lot of the recipe books for change are contextualized. This is the model. This is what you'll go through if you go through change or ADCAR from ProSci. This is the process that your organization, your people need to go through. Awareness, desire, knowledge, action, reinforcement or something like that. It's contextual. I'm sad to say that there aren't so many recipe books for the way humans react and there aren't recipe books for the way organizations react. I do want to circle back. There's one thing that was very interesting. So there's a man who sadly has left us who wrote a book called The 50 Myths of Popular Psychology. And I want to recommend that to listeners because there's about a two-page treatment of the myths of popular psychology in that book. For example, abstinence is the only cure for addiction. Is that true? Is that backed up by science, right? I mean, I happen to be abstinent myself, but is that the only path? One of the things he said to me was in the domain of learning styles. So learning styles are used by approximately 90% of teachers. And it's a very intuitively attractive idea. Here's the I from liar, intuition. We have learning styles, right? You prefer YouTube. I prefer reading. I prefer auditory. I prefer kinesthetic learning, using my body, whatever, right? And there are 20 or 30 different learning style models. Now, first of all, the critical thinker, the logic part of liar should say, hey, hang on a minute. If there are 20 or 30 of these, are they all right? Are none of them right? Are some of them right sometimes or whatever like that? Why are there so many? Like if it's supposed to be a description of how humans learn. So we all have preferences and that's trivially true. The question is, is an empirical question, the R in liar, is if you give people information according to their preference, do they learn better or faster or more sustainably? That's an empirical question. You can test that, right? You can get big, big cohorts of people and ask them to self-identify their learning styles using some learning styles questionnaire. And then you can prevent information to them in different ways and see how much they retain and how much they're able to use and how much is sustainable and how much sticks, right? You can do that. The answer is it does not. Now, that's a really counterintuitive idea. It's like research is telling our intuition, uh-uh, okay, you may like videos better, but you don't necessarily learn faster or better for videos. We don't like to believe things like that. The other thing that this guy, though, that wrote this book, and he's just such a great guy, he's a professor at Emory University. I said to him, like, what's the harm, buddy? What is the harm in using learning styles? If my child who's going into eighth grade gets presented information according to his preference, isn't that a duty of care that the teacher has to look after, to deliver content to the, to the current exams? What are your thoughts, Maureen? I'm thinking of a class I taught. I have people do reflection exercises because it's how adult people learn. I take it in, I try something, I reflect, and I write my thoughts down. I don't think them, I actually have to write them. Yep. And what I hear pretty consistently is, it'd be a lot easier if I didn't have to reflect. I wanna come to class, not really think a lot, sit here, you give me free breakfast, I get to hang out. It seems more like going to a movie than it does a learning experience. And so my sense is, Yes, in fact, it is hard to reflect. It requires that we think differently, but that's where the learning happens. Yeah, and more deeply. And we retain it. First thoughts aren't always the best thoughts. God knows, right? And here's the thing that Scott Lillianfeld, who's the author of this magnificent book, said to me. He said, okay, you've got people who have learning preferences. If you're training a soccer player, football, <laughs> you know, association football, you're training a football player, and they're very, very good with their right foot. And they really, 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 really prefer to use their right foot. And they're exceptionally good with their right foot. Are you serving them by encouraging them to use their right foot? No. How does that apply to the world of the 21st century that we live in today? You have to be a multimodal learner. You have to sample the nectar of learning from where it comes. If it's the New York Times, it's there. If it's YouTube, it's there. If it's podcasts, it's there. If it's kinesthetic, it's there. Movement-based learning. Are we serving people? My child, for example, who's in eighth grade, are we serving them? by not challenging their preferences, by not challenging them to go out of the country. Okay, you don't like reading so much, you prefer video. Okay, so what? Okay, we need to learn to read because you know what? You need to be a 21st century learner. Learning is the most important meta skill, they say, for the 21st century. Arguable, certainly, that that's true. 
UDB multimodal, your preferences, whatever, right? Okay, we all trivially have preferences. I prefer Netflix, whatever. That's not going to serve me. <laughs> anyway, so that's what's in the book. That's the flavor of what's in the book is how do we think critically about these things? I taught learning styles for 30 years. I taught urgency for 30 years. I taught resistance to change for 30 years. I taught denier angle bargaining, 30% depression acceptance for 30 years. I taught all of these things, not so much in the last decade, right? I taught them and I brought them into my change practice. And now when I started to do some research and writing, I discovered that lots of them weren't true. And I just want to offer people who are in the change and the leadership and the learning of the world to offer a chance to rethink things for themselves and make their own calls. Because, you know, again, I'd like to be the Supreme Court, but I'm not. You've said the liar model multiple times. You referenced the each letter. Remind us exactly what that is. Logic, it kind of makes sense, like it adds up. From that fact, you can draw that conclusion. Intuition, jives with our gut. Authority, Simon Sinek, John Cotter says it. The Center for Disease Control says it. Gwyneth Paltrow says it. Authority and research. What does evidence say? What do the people who work a day scientists who aren't known by anybody anywhere who are trying to study these things empirically, what does that say? And so you have those four things. We'd love it if they all accorded. They generally don't. They generally disagree. And you, as a epistemically virtuous, to use a $100 word, need to place your epistemic chips where they belong. Am I going to trust my intuition on this? Am I going to trust Simon Sinek or John Cotter? Am I going to trust what the scientists say? Or am I going to try to read things out for myself? So those are the four things. I mean, I didn't admit this, right? It comes from a philosophy professor who's in Australia, critical thinking. So I think it's really a, an important 21st century meta skill in the information age that we live in deluge by conflicting sources of information sometimes that have questionable providence. There you go. That's my fit. I love the idea of questioning authority, especially... When we think about now the idea of influencers and I become an authority because I'm a sports figure or an actress, Gwyneth Paltrow. I had a friend who diagnosed herself with cancer based on WebMD because of something or another. And I think it was indigestion. That might not work out so well. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> and hopefully she didn't take any uh, any uh, any 5-fluorouracil or methotrexate, these kind of very invasive drugs that they use to cure cancer. Hopefully she no, fortunately, she went to a doctor, but she had a few bad days before she could get the cancer appointment. Sure. And Steve Jobs was the opposite. I mean, the doctor said, it's lights out, buddy, unless you get the surgery. But he was more in the Gwyneth Paltrow score. I'm going to try juicing. I'm going to try fasting. I'm going to try yoga and exercise. I'm going to try cold ice baths, you know, whatever, all the stuff from the sort of, I don't want to say alternative or new age canon. He went that direction and then he died. And so people make mistakes on both sense. And Jobs was a smart guy. And I was sad that we lost him at, I don't know where he was, 56 years old or something like that. He had all the resources in the world at his disposal, but he probably made a poor choice. The doctors figured that they probably could have saved him or given him another 10 years, but he knew better or he had friends who were, uh, I think the physician Andrew Weil was his go-to source on alternative medicine for his cancer. Sadly, it didn't work when we lost someone who could have been an important figure today. Who knows, right? So it goes both ways. It goes, sometimes the doctors know what's up, sometimes they don't. And we get to choose. Yay. <laughs> There's an expression from the existentialist, we're doomed to choose. We are doomed to choose. And every choice entails may entail an irreparable loss. Every choice takes other choices off the board. So it does. Yep. And we don't get to live our life in reverse. Like we may stuff up. That's part of being human is we may we may make a mistake. And we deal with the consequences. In some cases, dire consequences. Some cases... Sometimes the cheesecake or the hot fudge in your case. <laughs> you know, I tried this power of positive thinking thing when I was in my 20s that I was going to think myself thin and eat pancakes and a lot of syrup every day. That's good. Didn't work. <laughs> Not shocking. <laughs> I gained weight. Uh, 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 uh. I do yoga and all that stuff. So I'm not denying the importance of the well-being industry. But I could see the yoga. The yoga is looking at me through the camera right now. Like the first thing I said to you, your listeners who were there and our sort of pre-call of the call is like, holy shit, how much weight have you lost? Right? How'd you do it? Because I struggle with the same thing myself. And you're like, well, I do hot yoga. I've been doing hot yoga seven days a week. I was like, okay, well, I have visual evidence that seems to have worked. There is something about we know what the equation looks like. Calories in, burn calories. Now there are things like hormones and body chemistry that impacts it. But 
there's kind of, I don't get hot fudge breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and no exercise, and maintain a sense of physical well-being. It has other benefits, too. I'm sure you're more mindful. I feel you should probably sleep better. There's lots of probably other things that it's doing for you besides the physical, which is so evident in this telephone call. Thank you for that. So as we wrap up, give us a minute of what's next for you. People can find me at Amazon.com. I have a website, PaulGibbons.net, but it's hopelessly out of date. But I use that. But you can reach me through Paul at PaulGibbons.net by email. You can find my books on Amazon.com. If you're interested in speaking, Paul at PaulGibbons.net is the place to go. What's next for me? Actually, this is the project that I'm really, really excited about. It's called The Future of Change Management. And I've spent a lot of the last 10 years of my writing career saying, this is a pile of baloney. And people quite rightly say to me, all right, Buster, whatever. So you say that this is nonsense. What's better? What should you replace it with? That's fine. That's a very, very fair challenge to me. It's much easier to tear things down than it is to build them up. That we know, right? So what do we do? So the future of change management. And it's got topics which I think are on the fringes of knowledge about human beings that we need to incorporate to the way we think about change for individuals and organizations. So what are the topics? Diversity, which doesn't really find itself in the books on change management. Neurodiversity, doesn't really find itself in the books on change management. Gamification, doesn't find itself in a lot of books on change management. Neuroscience, there's a bunch of books on change management. I have one of the women who's going to be authoring this chapter called Hillary Scarlett. She book, wrote a book called Neuroscience for Organizational Change. That's authoritatively very good. Behavioral science and change management, using nudges and choice architecture and sludges and various things like that. Analytics and change management. Mental health and change management is something we don't really talk about. And so those are the topics. And I've recruited authors from around the world to contribute a chapter. So I'm not going to write it, write it. I'm going to be the editor. I'm really excited about it. First of all, nobody's written it yet. There's no book that exists where all of this is under one roof. And so I'm super duper excited about that. And I have the great pleasure of saying all the chapters are written. It's just down to me to get my shit together and edit them. I need to do my part of it, but all of my authors have thrown in their manuscripts. I'm very excited about that. And I'm very excited about being back on the speaking circuit. So if anyone wants me to go to Geneva or to Venice to give a talk, I'd be really overjoyed. <laughs> there you are. I know we have talked to you multiple times and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. For our listeners, this is Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm Maureen Metcalf, and we hope that this conversation helps you be more change-ready as part of being more future-ready, because to the point, we all have to change just to keep up. And for those of us who are trying to get ahead of some of the curve, we really need to understand how to do it ourselves, for ourselves, and for the precious people around us, whether it's our organization or our family members or our community. Amen. Amen.